You ever get in your car and you're heading someplace, but you don't know exactly how to get to where it is that you're heading? So what do you do? You get out your phone and you type in the location. And then your phone will ask you, may I use your current location? And you'll say yes. And amazingly, no matter where you are, Google always seems to know. And then it maps it out for you. It tells you how to get there. And if you're anything like me, sometimes you miss a turn or you keep going when you should have taken a turn. And then you get that message recalculating. Well, this morning, as we kick off this new year, we're going to dive into a letter, a letter from the triune God. It's really a special delivery sent from the triune God with love. And for some of you, it's going to be an attaboy. You're on the right track. Keep on going. For others... Well, it's a letter of recalculation telling you you need to change course this new year really to live your life with the purpose that God intends. So to check this out, we're going to be going to the book of Revelation. It's an exciting book. I can't wait to kind of explore the first chapter with you. I want you to see that this book is written as a special delivery to the seven churches in Asia Minor and now to us. It's, it's a book that tells us to either stay on track, stay on course, like John will write to some of the churches, and then to other churches he'll say you're off course. It's time to recalculate, to adjust where it is you're heading. So this is the revelation of Jesus Christ given to the Apostle Paul. Revelation chapter one. Let's go ahead and check it out together. It reads, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. 
Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I had the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, to set this up for you, the church at this time was under a lot of pressure. The emperor at this time in the Roman Empire was a guy named Domitian. It was the 90s, not the 1990s, just the 90s. And so Domitian, he, he was an evil emperor. He came into power, um, many believe, because he killed his brother Titus, who was the emperor before him. And so you may be familiar with the persecution in Rome under Nero when Nero was in charge and he blamed the Christians for burning down Rome. And the persecution during Nero's reign, it really was kind of almost limited to the Christians in and around Rome. When Domitian became in charge, well, the persecution extended empire-wide. Now, the Romans went along with this. They were happy to go along with it because under Domitian's rule, Rome's borders were expanding. It was a time of, of wealth and prosperity. Things seemed good unless you were a Christian. And so, the Apostle John, he's the last living apostle, the last disciple of Jesus. All the others had already been martyred. John was in his 90s at this time, and he writes this book from the island of Patmos. Now, Patmos, it's just a little piece of rock in, in the middle of the Aegean Sea. In fact, if you were to turn into your Bibles and you go back to the place where all the maps are, Patmos might not even be listed. And if it is, it's probably just like a little line with a dot that says Patmos. There's not much to it. It's a small place. In fact, you could walk around the whole island. It would, it's only about 25 miles total to walk around the whole thing. It's about six miles wide, 11 miles long. That's it. That's the whole Island. It's a small little piece of rock just out in the middle of nowhere. It's kind of hard to find. And that's the point. It's kind of hard to find. And so that's why John gets stuck there because no one can find them, find him. He's isolated. He's just out in the middle of nowhere. This is where Rome sent the people. They really just wanted to cut off to be done away with because once you're on Patmos, well, you have no connection to the rest of the world pretty much. You may hear things through letters or through a guard, but that's really about it. There's no phone call that you can make. There's no internet that you can search. You're cut off. And so John, he's cut off from these seven churches 
churches in Asia Minor, these churches that he knew well. In fact, John was likely the bishop over these seven churches. He probably knew the pastors. He probably preached at these churches. He knew the people there. He, he knew who he was writing this book to. He understood the pressures they were facing. And he knew that as he was writing this vision that he was receiving, that by the time this book even made it to them, that there would be Christians there who would lose their lives. They would be martyred for the faith. That's the kind of pressure that these churches were under. And it's likely, I mean, we don't know, but perhaps John himself would have been martyred if he weren't so old. But perhaps Rome thought to herself, you know, what would this old man dread the most? And that is seeing everything that he had given his life to just go up in flames. To have to hear report after report after these churches that he had poured his life into were folding. They were collapsing due to the persecution and the pressure exerted by the empire. And so he would be reminded daily that his work would not survive survive him. That's probably the thinking of Rome by exiling him to this little island. The churches of Asia Minor, they were under severe threat, extreme pressure. The church, it was in desperate straits and John, old in his 90s, knew that many of these churches, it was time to recalculate, to think different about their view of God. And so across the generations of the church at various times and various locations, the church itself again has found herself up against the wall. And this book of Revelation to a church that's beat down, pressed, cornered, and feels almost marginalized, it comes anew from generation to generation, from saint to saint. This book get pa gets passed down, and it's now a reminder to us, just like it was to those churches in Asia Minor, to either keep on going or to recalculate. To a church whose problems seemed so big, almost insurmountable, John wanted them to make sure that they had a right view of God. And for some of them, it was time to recalculate your view of God. See, if you're ever in a situation where you think, this is too much, this is too big, where is God? He seems absent, everything is going up in flames. Maybe God is uninterested or he just seems to be absent. You need to know this book reminds us that you don't go through it alone because the book begins with the triune God putting his signature on this book, signing this book to the saints with love. I want you to see it. It kind of starts in verse four, okay? And God the Father, he's the first one to sign his name on the book. And he writes, the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come. This is God the Father, the one who has no beginning and who will have no ending. This is a declaration of his eternality, his presence and his deity. He's saying that, hey, I'm in charge of all things past, all things present, all things future. I've got it all under control. Nothing ever catches God by surprise. He was not unaware of the plight of the churches in Asia Minor, and he's not unaware of your circumstances as well. He knows it all, and so he signs his name to this book, and he says, this is to you from God the Father with love. And then the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, he signs his name to this book. He, it says, from the seven spirits who are before the throne. 
And I know to us, the seven spirits before the throne, it sounds a little funny. Maybe we don't really pick up on it right away. But you need to understand, seven is the number of perfection or completion. And the number seven, with respect to the Holy Spirit, it's kind of um, alluded back to in Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11. And it's in Isaiah chapter 11 where Isaiah describes the person of the Holy Spirit in a sevenfold manner. Isaiah says that he describes the Holy Spirit this way. He says that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And so this reminder comes to us, to the church, that if you need wisdom, if you need knowledge, if you need understanding, if you need counsel, if you need strength, that the Holy Spirit is given to you, Christian. And in case you forgot that, then you need to recalculate your view of God. And so the Holy Spirit says, I am signing this book to you. It's from the Holy Spirit with love. And then the third person within the Godhead to sign the name on his name on this book is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And he's described here in three ways. He's described as the faithful witness, the firstborn among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. You see, Jesus came to testify accurately and faithfully to the person of God the Father. When he speaks, his words are always true. He is blameless. He is faithful. He is that faithful witness who declares that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's also the firstborn of the dead. Humanity, due to our sin, was doomed to die a death apart from God. Our sins separated us from God. We've all missed God's holy, perfect standard. And while we were enemies of God, God the Father sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to die a death that we deserve to die, to be born man and then to die this death, to become sin for us while we were enemies with God he did all this but death could not hold him the second person of the trinity Jesus Christ rose from the dead he is the firstborn of the dead he conquered sin and death forever for those who will confess their sin and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and, and then he can be made right with God Jesus is also called the ruler of the kings of the earth. This refers to Jesus' reign as king over everything, as ruler over it all. In fact, Jesus Christ in scripture, he's referred to as the king of glory, the king of heaven, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, the king of the ages, the king of the saints, and the king of kings. And to a church that might have forgotten that Jesus is still on the throne, that Jesus still has the keys, that Jesus is still in charge. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, signs his name to this book as a special delivery to you and says, I am the king of the church and I want to be king of your life. This is from Jesus Christ with love. And so in the opening verses of this book of Revelation, the triune God shouts from the pages that if your life demonstrates in any way that you have forgotten just the magnitude of who our God is, this triune God, the, the Father who is and who was and is to come, the sevenfold 
Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and if you've forgotten Jesus Christ, just who all he is, if you've forgotten that in any way, then you need to recalculate your view of God. So John continues in his praise of the triune God, and he's writing to these seven churches, and he's saying, don't you see that God has signed his name all over this book? He wants you to know that this is from the triune God with love and that you were saved for a purpose. He then gets into the purpose of their salvation, that they have a reason for being here and now. And if you've forgotten your purpose in life, if you've forgotten the reason for your salvation, then John writes and he says, you need to recalculate your purpose in life. John says that God has made us a kingdom. A kingdom here and now, this glorious divine kingdom that he has made us that way. And maybe you say, well, I don't feel like I'm a part of some kind of glorious kingdom. I don't feel like royalty at all. John says it doesn't matter how you feel because this is who you are. This is what's really true. And then he says, we are a kingdom of priests to God the Father. We are a kingdom of priests. We are this holy priesthood. And maybe you thought, well, I thought only Catholics had priests. Well, no, no. What the Catholics miss is that we are all priests. You're a priest. I'm a priest. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are a priest. And so the question then comes, well, what exactly do priests do? And so in the Old Testament, you need to look and you need to understand that priests had two primary functions. The first function is a priest were to bring people close to God. See, this is the purpose of the church, you understand, that we have this divine, glorious responsibility to go and to bring people close to God. We get to share Jesus and impact people. We get to go and initiate into their lives and to disciple them, to show them what it looks like to follow Jesus and to live according to his words and how to read the Bible and how to pray and to do all this. We, we get to initiate into their lives so that, they, so that we can bring them close to God. The other thing that priests did in the Old Testament was they offered sacrifices. Now, that was Old Testament. In the Old Testament, all the sacrifices that the priests offered, they were always dead sacrifices. But now, as a kingdom of priests, things kind of get changed a little in the New Testament. We continue to offer sacrifices, but we now offer a living sacrifice. We offer ourselves. This is the thing. We are to offer our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God that will be acceptable to him. We offer our lives, our time, our talent, our treasure, our passion, all of who we are. We give it back to God who gave it to us so that we can see his rule and his reign expanded wherever it is that we live, work, study, and play so that his light might reach into the darkest corners of our culture. So remember, as John gives us this incredible revelation, this recording of what's going to happen, John, he's been cut off. He's been cut off from the church. He's just exiled on this island. And, but John tells us that he receives this revelation on the Lord's day. 
it's the Lord's day. So John, he, he has church. I mean, he's going to study the Bible. He's going to worship. It didn't matter that he may have been the only guy on the island. No one else there believed. Maybe he was the only pastor preaching a sermon to himself. We don't know. But one thing we do know is this. It was the Lord's day, so John was going to worship. He was going to worship. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He was worshiping. Aren't you glad that John didn't skip? I mean, aren't you glad that he didn't say, you know what, no one else is here to kind of hang out with, no one is here to worship with, there's nobody going to be preaching any message, I don't think there's anybody singing any songs, it would just be me, I don't really do solos too well. Aren't you glad that John didn't skip? I mean, we'd miss out on the last book of scripture all together. You see, the last thing that John kind of wants us to get here in chapter one is that sometimes we have to recalculate our perspective of the universe. Sometimes we have to recalculate our perspective of the universe. To do that, we have to worship well. John is worshiping God. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, because I know some people look at the book of Revelation as, oh, this is just a hard book. I know in the end we win. That's good. You need to understand this. The whole book is about worship. Okay, this, this book was written by a worshiper to worshiping communities about the God who is worthy of worship. It was written in an attitude of worship, in a spirit of worship. The whole book is about worship. It begins in a worship service and it will end in a worship service. Revelation is a book about worship. But you say, oh, Steve, you know, what I really like, though, is that epic battle of Armageddon. I mean, that's what I really get into. I, I can't wait to get to that point in the book of Revelation. You got to read the text, okay? It's Revelation chapter 19. The beast shows up with all his armies. Jesus comes in riding on a horse, faithful and true, a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And we, the church, come with him. But listen to this. When we come with Jesus, we are wearing linen and gold sashes. Now, I don't know a whole lot about war. I don't know a whole lot about combat, but I know enough to know that's not what you wear. You don't come wearing linen and gold sashes. Even in Ephesians, when Paul talks about the spiritual battle that we're in, he talks about what we need to wear, the proper combat attire and he talks about a breastplate and a helmet and a, and a shield and the proper shoes and and the sword he, he talks about what a what a soldier ought to be wearing here in revelation 19 at this big epic battle of armageddon we're wearing linen and gold sashes and this big epic battle he's all oh, that's what i really like you know how long the battle lasts one verse just one verse. You got to read the text. Don't just watch the movie. Read the text. It's one verse long. You know what Jesus does? He shows up, wipes everything out. It's game over just that fast. The beast shows up. He's captured. Jesus is there. Boom. We're standing there. We're wearing linen and gold sashes. Why? Because we understand Jesus doesn't need our help to win the battle. We're there to worship. We understand the battle is already won. We're just there to celebrate. We're there to worship the one who rids the world of Satan forever. We're there to celebrate the one who fights the battle on our behalf. We're there to worship. You understand it is the ultimate act of rebellion against Domitian and the ultimate act of rebellion even today. 
for the church to gather to worship, to defiantly tell the world that Jesus is the one true God, that he is king over everything, ruler over everything, just as he introduced himself in this book. You understand, we're not looking forward to the day when Jesus will come and be on the throne. John tells us that Jesus is on his throne now, and we worship to remind the world of that. And this is John, and he tells us that when he was in the spirit, when he was deep into worship, that that's when it happened. That's when he heard the voice. And did you catch how John described the whole scene? It's incredible. He says, I turned to see the voice. But when he turned, you notice the first thing he saw? He saw the golden lampstands first. You think he would see Jesus first, but he didn't. He saw the golden lampstands first. You know what the golden lampstands are? John tells us the golden lampstands are the church. He sees the church first. And isn't that how it usually happens for us too? That the first experience that we get of God, the first taste, the first glimpse that we get of God is not usually God himself. It's from the church. It's, for, it's from a representative. And so it's either easy or difficult to come to God because of how the church is, because we are the, either representing God well or poorly. You understand the people in your circle, you either make it easy or difficult for them to go to God. Why? Because the world typically sees the church before they see God. We are his representative, so we must represent him well. But John, he sees the church, and then he keeps turning, and then he sees Jesus. And John, he desperately tries to describe what he sees. He, he tells these churches that Jesus is standing there in the middle of you as though Jesus, you know, they, they had been taught that Jesus was dead, that he was gone, that he wasn't coming back, that it was all over. And Jesus says, no, he's alive. He's standing right in the middle of you. Jesus lives in his churches. He holds his churches up. He holds the angels of the churches who are looking after over those churches. He empowers them just to remind Mind us that God is in the middle of this. He is present. He's alive. That He holds the keys now and that we will never be snatched away. He says, I've got you. The Roman government, they had told those seven churches in Asia Minor that they had the power, that they were the ones who could imprison or set free. John says, No. I saw the one who had the keys. I saw the one. He was standing there. It's not Domitian. It's Jesus. Jesus has the keys. He has the authority. He's the one who calls the shots. And so Jesus, standing in the middle of the church, he has hair, white like wool, white like snow. His eyes were ablaze. His feet were bronze. His voice was roaring. His face was shining like the sun. I mean, you get the idea that John is just scribbling down what he sees just as fast as he can. He doesn't want to miss any details as he's relaying this to us. But then as he's taking it all in, he does what any of us would do. He just passes out as if he were dead right there, falls at the feet like a dead man. And what does Jesus do? He reaches out, puts his right hand on him. When John's brain couldn't process it all, Jesus reaches out and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, John. Why does Jesus tell John not to be afraid? 
because he's alive, because he has the keys, because he is present. Nobody else. He's the one on the throne. See, don't lose your perspective. In a broken, weary world, don't lose your perspective of the universe. And if you have, if, if the problems of this world seem insurmountable to you, this letter is written to tell you, recalculate your view of the universe. Recalculate your view of God. Recalculate your purpose in life. Recalculate your perspective of the universe. Because see, these churches, they were under all kinds of pressure. Many of them had lost their perspective on the universe. Many of them had insufficient views of God. They had forgotten their purpose in life. They were a church in many ways that had lost their route and they needed to recalculate. Maybe you've lost perspective as well. John writes this letter to remind the churches and to remind you and me that Jesus Christ is on his throne now. The promise that Paul wrote about to the Philippians, John says is true, that one day, yes, indeed, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We look forward to that day when that will happen. But John writes this letter to the churches of Asia Minor and now to us, that while everyone else will find that out one day, we know that truth now. We live in it now. The people of God experience it now. Jesus is on the throne. If you've gotten off course in any way and you're looking forward to 2021 and you're hoping that it's going to be a better year, I'm telling you, this is where you got to go to. You got to look and you got to ask yourself, what is my view of God? What is my view of my purpose in life? What is my view and my perspective of the universe? And if it doesn't align with what John is writing to these seven churches in Asia Minor, then he's writing this to you as well to say, recalculate. To others of you, he's writing as an attaboy saying you're on the right track. You get it. You understand. You keep going the way you're going. Keep investing into people. You are that kingdom of priests. You keep discipling. You keep offering yourself as a living sacrifice. You keep going. Yeah, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. But in the midst of that hardship, you can know peace because you will be embraced by the one who is alive the one who holds the keys, the one who's on his throne. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, yes, indeed, you are alive. You do hold the keys. You are on the throne. And Father, whenever we lose sight of that, God, help us to recalculate our view of who you are, our view of who you've called us to be, and our view of this world in which we live. Help us to represent you well. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.